Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. It is Monday, October 23rd, 2023, and I apologize in advance if my voice doesn't make it to the end of the show. Right now, I'm coming mildly strong, but I don't think I will be able to hold that up to the end. By Saturday night, I had no voice whatsoever. No, I'm not sick. I don't need to get like the 19th booster or wear my triple masks when I go to the bathroom or anything like that. I was talking up a storm on stage and off stage Saturday at True North Nation, our first ever live and in-person events. We had like 450 people come out to uh, see me and Harrison and uh, Rachel Emanuel and Brett Wilson and Danielle Smith and Lindsay Shepard and Candace Malcolm. And I feel like I've probably forgotten a couple of people who are on stage. It's not intentional or personal, but uh, to those of you that I got to meet there, thank you so much for coming out. Uh, we had We decided early on when we were putting this thing together we wanted it to be fun. I have been to many boring conferences and there is nothing worse than being locked up in a conference room all day and forced to listen to people like me drone on. We wanted to have it be a bit lighter. So we're like, what could we do to make it fun? We brought in a popcorn machine. We had a game show and in a little bit of an homage to the greatest hate symbol in the history of Canada, we had a bouncy castle. It was a way to ward off the woke forces that might want to uh, dismantle all the work that we're doing. I said on stage, I didn't realize all I needed to do to trigger the left was just uh, eat an apple. Had I known that, it would have been slightly cheaper than the Bouncy Castle. But I did get a picture in front of the Bouncy Castle with this lovely lady, Tamara Leach, who uh, came with her husband and sister and uh, met some people there, which was uh, quite lovely. And, you know, I honored her just by naming her from the stage and, and she got a standing ovation. Uh, she is now back in court for the never ending trial. Although a bit of good news on the horizon in that front that is breaking in nature. The Crown has withdrawn its charge of violating bail, of breaking her bail restrictions. This just came down the pipeline in the last couple of hours. The Crown said it was denying the charge that it had put on her last year, uh, where you may remember this. She took a photo at the Justice Center for Constitution. Well, she didn't even take it. Someone took a photo of her and some other folks at the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms dinner. And in the photo, like, I don't know, four people down was Tom Marazzo with whom she was not supposed to have any contact. So uh, they literally had a Canada-wide warrant and had police pick her up in Medicine Hat and fly her to Ottawa to go back to jail. So that charge has now been withdrawn. And one of the reasons the court said was that, or the prosecutor said was that, well, you know, this trial's already going on so long. Let's just focus all our efforts on this. So they want to make sure they could really, really give her the gears on the current charges they're trying and not have to worry about this one. And incidentally, Tom Marazzo is going to be on the show tomorrow. Not about this. We'll be talking to him about something else. But I, I was worried and I said to Tamara, I, I should probably shouldn't share this, but I think it's fine now. I said to Tamara, I said, I, I'll take the picture with you, but like, please don't like, please tell me this isn't going to like violate your bail condition. She said, no, I think we're fine. So uh, who knows if like a bouncy castle is like this great symbol of uh, all of these things she's not supposed to be doing now in the eyes of the state, you never know. But 
Uh, she did not seem to be uh, phased by that and actually brought to our True North organizer some of these delicious mini cheesecakes from Medicine Hat, which were, I, I looked like I ate them all. I did not eat them all. I only had a, a bit of one, but they were absolutely delightful. So thanks again to everyone for coming out there. Uh, getting into the breaking news today on the non-Tamara Leach trial front, of which there is a great deal. I wanted to discuss this scourge of anti-Semitism that we see coming out of the shadows. Now, I've quoted oftentimes my friend, Laura Rosen Cohen, who's a fantastic writer, who coined the phrase, everyone meets at Jew hate junction. And it's uh, you know quite a, a little witty, snappy phrase, but there's a lot of truth behind it because it's the place that seems to be the natural resting point for a lot of bigots. They can all sort of agree on being anti-Semites and being anti-Semitic. And uh, in the first few days of Hamas's latest attack on Israel, uh, it was very trendy to condemn Hamas, to denounce Hamas. It was the morally right thing to do, but it was also the trendy thing to do. And the people who have a great deal of disdain and contempt for Jews kept their mouths shut, some of them, not all of them, for a couple of days. Well, as Israel mounts its counteroffensive and tries to push the Hamas forces back and relegate terrorism to its place, people who despise Israel and its existence and the fact that the Jewish people have a state of their own have not been able to keep quiet for long. And interestingly enough, even some of the people that have previously apologized for their statements are now reverting back to it. For example, Sarah Jama who is a, well, was until this morning, a New Democrat member of Ontario's legislature. You may recall she issued this statement about, uh, you know, resistance and all that. And then she she kind of pivoted that to a pseudo-apology walk back of sorts. And then the NDP was like, okay, great, we've dealt with this. Well, now she started doubling down again. And we hear from Sarah Jama more reiterating of this. And, and essentially, she's been unrepentant. Well, this morning, she was removed from the NDP caucus. Now, uh, some NDPers who agree with everything she says on Israel are very unhappy about this. But uh, if you want your party to exist on the fringes, you welcome people like Sarah Jama. If you want it to be a serious party, which in Ontario it kind of is, then this was probably the right move. But the reason I bring all of this up right now is that it is increasingly normalized and mainstream to take very radical anti-Israel positions. And I'm not saying criticism of Israel is always anti-Semitic or that criticism of Israel is always radical, but I'm saying that the very fervent anti-Israel rhetoric is almost always anti-Semitic in nature. And when I say it's mainstreamed, I mean people that are looking to enter the workforce, finish up their studies, are owning up to the fact that they hold Israel in a great deal of contempt, not just the decisions the country makes, but the existence of the country. You may have seen this. Over the weekend, there was an open letter distributed signed by dozens of students at TMU's law school. Now, uh, you may not know what TMU is. I don't think they do either. It's okay. This is Toronto Metropolitan University which is the name of, uh, it's the artist formerly known as Ryerson, because saying the word Ryerson is now a hate crime, so you have to say uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, uh, or you can actually say uneducated moronic douchebag institution, because that is essentially the reputation it attracts when these sorts of students are defining it. Now, these are law students. These are students who have gone through undergraduate studies. They are educated by definition, and now they are about to enter the wonderful world of 
of law. Now, you may have some criticisms about lawyers, and I think that's fair, but I want to read some of the comments in this letter to you. This is a, a letter that they signed that they put their names to. Uh, 1L students who are in their first year of law school, 2L students, 3L students, also alumni. And in this letter, they say that they recognize the apartheid state referred to as, quote, Israel is a product of settler colonialism. They say Israel is responsible for an illegal occupation and ethnically cleansing. They say Israel is a settler colony. And more importantly, they say we stand in solidarity with Palestine and support all forms of Palestinian resistance and efforts toward liberation all forms. They go on to say they condemn any statement that shifts the narrative away from colonialism. They say it's not a war. We can't both sides it. They say Israel's the bad guy unequivocally because they are the oppressor and Hamas and the Palestinians are the oppressed. This is a letter they have a right to issue. They have a right to sign it. One of the things that is worth noting out noting is that law students are in about two weeks' time going to be applying for jobs or interviewing for jobs at Toronto Bay Street firms. Now, uh, you may or may not know this, and I don't think it's an unfair stereotype, but there are some high-profile Jewish lawyers around that I would hope would raise some very serious concerns within their firms about these students who are not just expressing their opinions, but expressing opinions that literally and explicitly justify and condone violence. When they say all forms of resistance, they mean that uh, paratrooping in and kidnapping an Israeli grandma and beheading a baby and raping a teenager, well, that is all just resistance. And how dare you criticize them when they're just the oppressed victim colonized? That's what they're saying, that all of that is completely and utterly fine and fair game. It is not just despicable and disgusting, but it borders on evil. And these students should know better. And I would say, if you believe that, absolutely. Put your name to it, wear it proudly. And I hope that anyone who wishes to hire you will understand the issues that you want to advocate for as a lawyer when you issue that statement to your university, because that is precisely what's happening here. Now, of course, the letter got deleted, but not before screenshots, which you can look up if you're so inclined, sharing the names and titles, which these people put on the letter themselves were made and are a part of the screenshots that are circulating. And when you ask the question, which is a legitimate one, well, hang on, are you being unfair when you say that uh, people who are anti-Israel are anti-Semitic? And I, I always put the caveat that not necessarily, but more often than not, they are. Let's, for example, take a look at this video footage from the weekend at a popular Toronto restaurant at which I've never been, but I've heard very good things about Cafe Landver. Now, you may wonder why they're targeting this restaurant. Now, I've never been there. Supposedly, they have very good schnitzel. To my knowledge, the restaurant has never been explicitly political. I have not seen any statements or proclamations of being Zionist, but the restaurant is Jewish-owned. 
And it seems to me, from my perspective, the only reason it was targeted by these activists is because a Jew dared own a restaurant in downtown Toronto, and that is worthy of calls for boycott. You often hear university campuses very explicitly and openly vow to support the boycott divestment sanctions movement, which is to say we should boycott Israeli products. Sometimes they will go so far as to say Israeli people, Israeli academics, and divest from any Israeli company and sanction Israeli products and all of that. And it's not actually Israel thereafter, it's Jews. And they can cloak it all they want in the pretend, oh, I'm just an anti-Zionist, or oh, I'm just making criticisms of Israel. But a lot of these people hate the Jewish people and are very proud of that fact. Now, I've always said, despite my criticisms of this, I am a supporter of freedom of speech. I believe you have the right to express very heinous views. I take a very broad view of free speech. Uh, I will also say that some of the rhetoric we've seen in some of these protests in the last couple of weeks very much crosses that threshold of threatening violence or supporting terrorism, which is where we get into trickier territory. Now, that being said, as with that letter signed by the uh, Ryerson, or no, you can't say Ryerson anymore, the TMU law students, uh, it's probably more useful to know who these people are, which you don't get if you go the censorship route. But I saw an interesting tweet from Ari Goldkind, who's a, a lawyer in, uh, you may know, he's quite a superstar on the media circuit, and I've had the great privilege of being on his show on a couple of occasions. But Ari Goldkind uh, shared that video from the protests outside Lanver, and he said, I'm a supporter of the police, which in my line of work isn't popular, but I don't think I've ever felt more let down by the police than in the last two weeks, turning a complete blind eye, which they'd never do with a proud boy, a non-social distancer, or God forbid, a trucker. Ari Goldkind joins me now. Ari, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Great to be with you, Andrew. So let's first off, let, let, let me get your take on that law letter, uh, because here we have students that are in a couple of weeks going to be doing interviews with, you know, some of these big Bay Street law firms. And, and I know we can talk about how institutions have gone so woke, but I can't imagine there are a lot of law firms in Toronto that would want anything to do with people saying that this call to violence should be welcomed. Well, Andrew, as much as I tend to agree with a lot of the things you say, I'm going to disagree on that one. They will be hired within a nanosecond. Wow. Uh, this, this is how Toronto now works. All one has to do is look at demographics in Toronto to understand the imbalance here between people with my last name and people who think people with my last name should be wiped off the face of the earth. The fact that this is now going to be the future lawyers of this country, forget even the anti-Jew part of it. And no, I don't accept that the anti-Israel part means that they're not anti-Jew. It's just a, a euphemism that they use as a get out of jail free card. But leaving aside the anti-Jewish hate, because I don't actually love the word anti-Semitic, it's not specific enough. These are also people that are going to be in charge of free speech, free expression, which we know will not only be free, it'll be expensive, but it could cost you your life, your business, your boycott. And the worst part about it, Andrew, is that nobody's doing a thing about it because the political people that could do something about it or the people at the top of the corporate food chain, which often have more power than even politicians, they understand the demographics in this country. The members of parliament understand the ridings 
And you don't need votes of people with last names of Goldkind or Schwartz or Silverstein to get elected anymore. They know the demographics, they know the birth rates, they know our country's completely open border. So when you hear Trudeau and his sycophants saying, we don't like anti-Semitism, but on the same day they welcome hundreds if not thousands on a daily basis mm-hmm. of anti-Semites to this country, all you're now seeing at Cafe Landwer and other places is people who thought they needed to be a little bit quieter, now they're emboldened, they're doing it in a blazing way. And the part that concerns me, given the double standards of the last few years, Andrew, is that they know they can do it, they're untouchable, and this country that I thought would be safe for people with my last name is now clearly, clearly becoming unsafe. And for those who say, oh, Ari, you're clutching your pearls, which you're not actually wearing, I can tell you that in the late 1920s and early 1930s, there was no greater place on the earth for Jews to live than Germany and Poland. It's a heart-wrenching tale you tell. And one I hear from so many of my Jewish friends, uh, just over the weekend, there was the president of a Detroit synagogue who was stabbed in her home. I mean, this is, I fear, a story that's going to be repeating itself elsewhere. Cafe Cafe Land, where it's only crime, insofar as I've been able to uh, see it, is that they happen to be Jewish in Toronto right now, which is enough to attract this attention. And you are right when you make that reference in your tweet to truckers. When there were a group of people that were planning when the convoy was in Ottawa to drive around Toronto and honk their horns for a bit, police were giving press conferences. They were talking about all these preventative measures. And even if they didn't charge, they were saying we need to be out in full force to say we aren't going to stand for this. Where is that on this scourge of anti-Semitism? It's non-existent. So, so let me bring in a little bit of the law here. I mean, I'm not dressed like this to see you, Andrew. I am in the middle of my work day and always a delight. I thought I was special. Well, you are, but here's where I'm going to go back to agreeing with something that you said at the beginning. You and I are both almost free speech absolutists, okay? And I very much am a free speech absolutist. Here's the point. You now have a country that says there are hate speech laws, that says public incitement to hatred is unacceptable. But it seems like there's only one group of people that you can do it with, only one group of people. And where I say is, if police were not going around and arresting people for not socially distancing, or for demonstrating in Ottawa, or for saying they don't want a vaccine mandate, or not standing six feet behind somebody at Costco or Walmart, I would be the first to say, look, police really shouldn't get in here. This is odious and disgusting. But by what double standard can somebody be arrested? I mean, literally arrested for taking their kid rollerblading in COVID or complaining about Pfizer But these people publicly inciting hatred and genocide, which is what they're doing of the Jewish people, means no police response should be forthcoming. And Andrew, to go inside baseball, I can tell you very specifically, a friend of mine was assaulted at Young and Bloor the other night, right on video, right at one of these massive demonstrations. And the police made very clear to him, as a Jew, they're not there to arrest. They don't want to make things any more heated. They're just there to observe. This is a Toronto police service, which I've lost 
a lot of love in my business. I'm a criminal defense lawyer that's supposed to be very anti-police and not liking police. I'm very out, outspokenly pro-police. The fact that the police brass, I don't put this on the beat cop, Andrew. The fact that the police brass understand the new demographics of the greater Toronto area, and it certainly isn't Jewy, and the fact that they're allowing this to take place is a very, very scary thing. And if you take the view that they should be hands off, which is a legitimate, mm -hmm. debatable view, it's a very worthy debate, then ask yourself, should dad have been arrested for taking kid rollerblading two years ago? And trust me, I did those cases. So if the police are concerned with Tamara Leach on a day, by the way, where her stupid bail charge was just withdrawn a half yes. an hour before you and I spoke, she did 49 or 59 nights in jail. The charge was withdrawn. These people are advocating on Young Street in Toronto that people like me should be killed and put into the sea. That's what they're saying. If you don't believe me, hire a translator. And the fact that they're all going to be future lawyers, and this is what Ryerson or, or TMU students are putting in, lawyers occupy, as much as I can make 100 jokes, Andrew, a pretty lofty place at certain levels mm -hmm. in our culture. The idea that not only they're signing this and thinking it, but they're saying it proudly, other, unlike those cowardly Harvard pieces of garbage who didn't have the guts to sign it. These people are putting their names to it, and it won't cost them a single thing. Well, and therein lies, I, I think, the crucial part of this, Ari, which is that there has been in the last couple of weeks, and I, I'd say it's been increasing over a number of years, the normalization of this. I mean, it used to be uh, people had the wherewithal to conceal certain beliefs like this. And maybe you'd see these pockets on university campuses. But now when someone says from the river to the sea, which is, you know, calling, I did the whole map analysis last week on this show. It's, it, they're, they're, it's from the river big, to the sea is the entirety of Israel. property, Andrew. People have more property in Alberta. Yeah, exactly. So when they say that, it's, uh, you know, I think an incredibly important point that they're proud of that. You know, they're proud of saying all forms of resistance. Now, you have to have a level of temerity and brazenness to defend unequivocally all forms of resistance when babies were beheaded. Like, how on earth did this become so acceptable? Oh, I believe we've lost Ari there. Uh, we uh, will hopefully get him back in a couple of moments. But I, I think the point stands. When, when they say all forms of resistance, they are saying that any single news story we have heard of, atrocities happening, was in their minds completely A-OK. -okay. That's the position they've taken. Yesterday, I don't know if you saw this, and I, I haven't done it myself because I was uh, traveling yesterday, and to be honest, I don't know if I want to. But Israel, the Israeli government released to journalists hours and hours of footage and information it collected from Hamas officials and uh, operatives that were apparently wearing body cams. Like they, they shared this and they said to all these people, you don't believe what they were doing here. Here's the evidence of what they were doing. And you're still going to get deniers and all of that. But uh, we've got Ari back. Ari, I don't know where we lost you there. But basically, my, my question was, when you say all forms of resistance are fine, knowing what we know about what Hamas has done, you're defending that. And how did that become acceptable? How did that become a position that you could, in mainstream society, express? Well, look, you start, Andrew, and I think somebody's not liking what I'm saying, so they cut the internet feed, even though it looks four bars. But in any event, you look at 
Okay. The first, and I think all roads, I always believe this, Andrew, I'm a person fascinated by 9-11. I'm 49 years old. It's imprinted in my DNA. I have walked the tracks at Auschwitz. When you walk the tracks at Auschwitz, you feel things differently than an 18-year-old who never saw 9-11 and who has no idea what the Holocaust is. What they're saying right now, remember after 9-11, the first thing Bush said is, don't be mad at the philosophy or political religious ideology that did this to America. It wasn't just done to the buildings, it was done to America. That's the first thing Bush did. So what did every Western world country do, Andrew? They did the opposite of what they should do. Now let's bring this back home to Canada. Look at that bill, whether it's M13 or I can't remember what it is, I don't remember. You're not allowed to say anything about the fastest growing religion in Canada. You're not allowed to say anything. If you're saying anything about it, you're told that you're phobic or that you have a certain phobia. But they can say anything they want about Jews, including from the river to the sea, and they're more specific than that. They call for actual murder, mm -hmm. genocide, and death. Nobody says a word about it. And here's the kicker. If somebody like me says what I'm saying, and Justin Trudeau hears me today, he'll come out and say, I'm making this up, but it's exactly what he'd say. Well, I've heard Ari Goldkind and anti-Semitism has no place in our country. And Islamophobia is one of the most serious problems in our country. They can never, ever understand or say out loud, where does the new anti-Semitism come from? Does it come from a proud boy? Does it come from MAGA? Does it come from the Ku Klux Klan? This is not a difficult puzzle to solve. It's not getting the caramel in the Cadbury bar. That's what is so pernicious mm -hmm. and sinister about this is that you can never talk about this issue with one of these actually grotesque liberal MPPs or the entire disgusting NDP always conflating anti-Semitism and Islamophobia when they're not to be conflated and when the numbers and the birth rates in this country suggest that if you're Jewish, Houston, we have a problem. If you're not, you're in control of everything. And now they're in control of more than you're even allowed to talk about, which used to be, by the way, the pernicious stereotypical Jewish myth mm -hmm. that Jews were kind of proud of, but we were wanting to make art develop vaccines, uh, do heart surgery, write piano concertos, uh, advance the law in a good way for the underprivileged. Now, where are things from the group that is growing exponentially? It is to push people like me into the sea. And people keep saying, Andrew, and people who don't have my last name can't understand this. Oh, it'll never get to 1929, 1933, what do you think the next step is when they go to the Jewish businesses? Do you think it's to peacefully protest? They're emboldened and they're emblazoned. This country is in trouble and we have been completely, completely abandoned by a federal government that, by the way, Andrew, is obsessed with minority rights so long as that minority is the majority of their voters. Think that through. Just one final question, because you mentioned M103, which was the anti-Islamophobia motion. And, uh, you know, I was very critical of that uh, going back. And I, people can read what I, I wrote at the time. But 
a lot of the Jewish groups, and by that I mean, you know, the official Jewish groups that proclaim to speak for Jewish people, and I don't yeah, always, exactly. but I, I think, Pro proclaim, don't get me started yeah, on proclaim. that. Yeah, proclaim. Yeah. We're, we're standing in lockstep with a lot of the Muslim groups when M103 was coming up, and I think a lot of them felt they had to, that, you know, they, they would be hypocritical to talk about anti-Semitism without condemning Islamophobia, but a lot of them had had egg on their face the last two weeks, when they've been wondering when that reciprocation is going to come, and it just hasn't. It's been, some of the Muslim groups have get gave very cursory condemnations. Many didn't even do that. And most of them have actually come out with outright endorsements of uh, what Hamas has done in the week since. And I think a lot of uh, very well-meaning Jewish people kind of got hoodwinked during that Islamophobia discussion. All right. So I, I understand the last part. I'm actually not sure they're well-meaning. I think they've committed suicide. I think they've killed themselves. I think they've killed others. This was always suicidal to me. You could see the writing on the wall 10 million miles away, all you have to do is study demographics, study what's happened in the West, study what's happened in Europe, study what's happened in Canada, and you can understand, even this rabbi that was killed that they say, well, they have no evidence it's a hate crime in Detroit. Well, what was it, a love crime? Even that rabbi was instrumental in saying that the other side are her friends. And if we've ever seen a wake-up call where people shot at raves in the Negev desert, innocent, truly innocent people beheaded, whatever you want to say, carved up, elderly, younger. If there was ever a line in the sand that if the two religions were going to come together, as the religion of peace says it's a religion of peace and we're going to come together. If there was ever an example where people would say there's just a bridge too far, you would think shooting people driving down a road or at a music rave of all races and religions, Americans, Brazilians, uh, Asians, whatever it is, you would think they'd come out and say, you know what? We have to do something about it. I mean, their side. Instead, it's all this nonsensical, woke, garbage language, settler colonialism, this, that, and the other. It's all horse manure. It's garbage. And as far as I'm concerned, the Jews that have gone down this road, who tend to be left or far left, have all essentially assisted the rest of us in committing suicide because they all didn't listen to the words from 1945, which was never again. And all they've done is allow it to begin again. Ari Goldkind, always a pleasure. I know it's been very difficult for, for you in the last few days, but I, I'm glad you're speaking out the way you are, sir. Thank you for coming on. Always good to talk to you, Andrew. All right. That was Ari Goldkind. Uh, and again, I mean, he was very, very explicit in what he said. And I, I think people should very much pay heed to that. We'll have more on this discussion tomorrow. And I will also just pivot uh, very abruptly because there's no natural transition here to uh, this story out of Ottawa. Now, we had on the weekend at True North Nation, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation very generously and graciously sponsor us. And our good friend Chris Sims was there, who is our uh, favorite guest every Monday because, well, she's our only guest that's on every Monday, but she'd be our favorite anyway. Uh, Chris, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having us on, Andrew. And uh, I couldn't even find my original backdrop because it's still stuck in the car. <laughs> I had to grab this old one. So yeah, it was really being it was really great being at that conference. Well, it was uh, good to have you there. So I, we did a home renovation, my wife and I, uh, back in the summer. And you know, we were trying to you know scrimp and save and you know spend as little as we had to while getting quality. I, I feel we got a steal looking at the government of Canada's reno budget. What was this? $8 million for a barn at Rideau Hall. 
Yeah. Am I misreading this? Nope, you're not. Uh, it's really bad. <laughs> so uh, my partner in crime, Franco Terrazano, our federal director, uh, and our investigative journalist, Ryan Thorpe, uh, they work away there in Mordor, also known as Ottawa, in our office. And they dug up these documents, Andrew, that showed taxpayers paid more than $8 million for what is being referred to as a barn on the grounds of Rideau Hall. So Rideau Hall is where our governor general lives. Right now, it's also actually where the prime minister of Canada lives too in the Rideau cottage because 24 Sussex is so dilapidated. So on those grounds, they built this storage facility, lack of a better term, that is somehow net zero. And if this is an indicator of how much net zero is going to cost us, as far as the government goes, uh, folks, just put a fork in it. We're done. We can't afford this. They blew $8 million on this thing. And so it's apparently to store vehicles and to wash vehicles and stuff. They started uh, shovels in the ground July of 2020, and they took about a year or so to finish it off. So just imagine July 2020. This is when we were getting locked down, businesses were getting shut down, people losing their livelihoods, you know, everybody getting a lot of people getting uh, salary reductions and pay cuts. No, no, the NCC forks out $8 million for what is essentially a glorified garage. Yeah, and I mean, we've been hearing for uh, years now about all the issues with finding a place for the Prime Minister to live because, uh, you know, 24 Sussex Drive is like this rat-infested... I'm not talking about the politicians that live there, like literal like rats and the uh, cobwebs and all of that. And then, you know, so they have to stay at Rideau Cottage, and then, but then they're also renovating and building like additions at Harrington Lake. And then, so then you hear about this. It's like, I, I, you go to Northern Ontario or rural Alberta and you'll find like four guys named Chuck that'll build a barn for... 82 bucks and a two four in a weekend. Yeah, exactly. As uh, Franco put it, you know, he's not a farmer, but our buddies in Brooks can sure as heck build you a barn or even a garage. They should have put it out to tender. Let your buddies in Brooks uh, make a bid on this rather than like, you know, Ottawa's finest. Yes, exactly. And see, this is the problem. You know, people can hear $8 million and just kind of roll their eyes and let it glaze over. No, really. Think about what $8 million is in real money. If you look up what is often referred to as Ottawa's fanciest palatial mansion, it's on sale right now on a real estate website, it isn't even $8 million. And we're talking like marble, everything, jacuzzi tubs, like fancy stuff that we'd see on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous when you and I were kids. They blew this on a garage. So this is just indicative of what the National Capital Commission is capable of doing when it comes to blowing money. And for anybody who lives outside of the Ottawa bubble, you don't know what the NCC is. What it is, is basically a glorified parks and rec department that is only in the Ottawa Gatineau little bubble there. It's usually responsible for things like Tulip Festival and cutting the weeds out of the Rideau Canal. But they're also the geniuses that blow this kind of money on a garage. They're also the ones who have built a bonus mansion up at Harrington Lake for who knows who to live in. These folks just waste money in spectacular fashion. And Andrew, these are the same people who are crying poor. They want a raise. They want more taxpayers' money. They want to spend more taxpayers' money on 24 Sussex. Yeah. And so this is just a highlight. Like, we have unmoney right now. We are so deeply in debt. We're more than a trillion dollars in debt federally. If you and I started counting right now, Andrew, if we had like a barrel of loonies, 
it would take us 30,000 years to count to 1 trillion. That's, That's some great data visualization there, uh, Chris. But I know it's insane. And look, I, just to reiterate this point, $175 million is what the NCC wants uh, to uh, renovate, or no, what they spent uh, to renovate and maintain properties. Sorry, 135 for the renovation. They want 175 to restore them. Uh, so basically they want you know over 300 million in the span of like 15, 20 years uh, to do this. And I mean, the NCC is basically... It's, it's like bureaucrats and interior decorators combined, like both of whom want to blow more money than a project budget has. It's like, I never thought that was the most dangerous combination, but I think it is. Interior decorator bureaucrats. <laughs> they have, they've created a monster, right? Because imagine having endless monies, right? No budget. All those home reno shows that you watch, right? Yeah. Usually they'll stop about 10 minutes in. And they'll have that moment where the couple's like, oh, can we really afford this? Imagine that part never happening like ever, and yeah. then just double the cost on top of everything else because it's government. That is what we are all paying for with the NCC. Like for the amount of money that they spend renovating Harrington Lake, to give you an idea, you could have bought uh, Avril Lavigne and Chad Kroger's mansion. You could have bought Halle Berry's cottage up in the Laurentians. You could have bought, there was a really famous hockey player. You and I know about the same amount as, of hockey, NHL. Yeah. <laughs> You could have bought his house, his, his fancy mansion in London, Ontario, all combined. Wait, there's a hockey player who has a fancy mansion in London? I live in London, Ontario. I didn't apparently know Apparently there is. Yeah, it's apparently the most expensive house in London, Ontario. And some NHLer dude owns it. I stopped following hockey in 1994. Well, Justin Bieber lives like, you know, 45 minutes from me. You could have used that one. as a, I don't know how much his house is worth, though. Right? And so they spent more just renoing one cottage at Harrington Lake than all of those places I just described to you. You could buy them. Like, you could buy them outright. Yeah. So this is where we're highlighting this, folks, that we just can't afford this. And this is the sort of mentality and thinking that is the reason why we are more than a trillion dollars in debt. So the next time we're saying, folks, the government needs to tighten its belt, don't let them get away with the idea of, okay, what do you want to cut first? You know, healthcare or education. That's just nonsense. How about you scrap the NCC? When C11 uh, goes into full force, we'll do like some CanCon uh, knockoff of Property Brothers. We'll call it Property Bureaucrats. We'll uh, just have the NCC go into like little suburban families' homes and, you know, renovate them. And uh, when the person says, well, I don't know how we're going to afford that, the uh, NCC people will be like, what do you, what? I, sorry, I've, I've never heard those words before. What do you mean? <laughs> I need my universal translator. I actually yeah. would watch that show. So especially if you've uh, never CDF done... should produce it. You should do your own like little uh, spoof comedy of like, you know, the NCC version of a home reno show. I, I'll, I'll, I'll chip in a couple hundred bucks for that. Could you imagine just like Franco in like a tool belt <laughs> with like a level and like a hammer just doing stuff? I would yeah, I want Franco to do the whole like homes on homes, uh, you know, thing with the, you know, the overalls and the tool belt. <laughs> Uh, and then you'll be in there with your hard hat directing it along. Uh, we can get, uh, you know, Scott Hennig to, uh, you know, go in there with the palettes for the paint and just everyone gets to pick it up. I think we're onto something here. There'd be so many smashed fingers and bruised toes, <laughs> but it would be funny and we would do it under budget. So it would get done. It would be just like that Simpsons episode where they had a load bearing poster. Remember when they rebuilt Flanders house and it all yes, fell yes. down and they took that poster down? But this, you got to laugh or cry. I know folks are watching this going, how could you be laughing at $8 million? It's either that or cry, folks. 
Because if you sat down and tried, I guarantee you, you would not be able to blow even $4 million building a garage. Double that. And you paid for it. So that can get depressing real fast. And this is the key. Bureaucrats and politicians can't stand it when you mock them. They can't stand it. It really bothers them because if they stay in power long enough, they start thinking they're like some duke and you are a feudal serf. So if you laugh at them and you point at them and you mock them and ridicule them, it really gets under their skin. And hopefully we'll be able to get to them and make them change their behavior. Yeah, they're they're just not used to any real criticism or pushback, which is why a lot of these things just uh, tend to exist uh, without <laughs> without any sort of challenging and, and criticism. And I think that you know having members of parliament that are going to stand up there and say no is important. But it's amazing how much of this is just allowed on a discretionary basis. Like how much power is kind of relegated to these people, and how large their budgets actually are. This is when we get into things like permanent government, right? Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where you can hear, you know, Trump talk about the swamp and you can hear about deep state and all that stuff, but taking just rinse all the politics out of it for a moment, say that it's benevolent for some reason or objective or rational. We have a permanent government and it's always there. So whenever you hear somebody refer to a deputy minister, that doesn't mean the junior backbencher sitting in the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. That means a bureaucrat who is heading up a department that bureaucrat almost always is paid way more than that elected politician cabinet minister, okay? And nobody knows their name. They can almost never be fired. And the ability to hold them to account is almost impossible. So, and they have a ton of staff and underlings under them. That's the department side mm -hmm. of things. And no matter who gets elected through the revolving election door, okay, the bureaucrats in that department, they see you as a Johnny come lately. If yeah. they don't like dealing with you, they put their feet up and they water a houseplant ender and they wait. They wait for a change of government because they see themselves as the permanent state. It was uh, wonderful to see you Saturday at uh, True North Nation, you representing CTF. And then you also had our friend Liam Dunn, who was there with Generation Screwed. Uh, wait. Okay, what? Chris, I've got the name for your show. Okay. Generation Screwdriver. It's the Canadian Taxpayers Federation Fixer Upper Show, Generation Screwdriver. Okay, you did uh, it. You coined it. Go buy the domain. <laughs> I'm gonna like I, I'm gonna do the uh, Ezra Levant thing and like book the domain name right away, just in case, because you know I need to have that. No, I've seen it's him all do yours. It, okay, everyone, that's uh, coming soon to CTF, and uh, you'll of course learn about the show because with C11 it'll be forced to your homepage as uh, authentic Canadian content. All right, uh, Chris Sims, always good to talk to you. We will check in next Monday. Take care, Andrew. All right, thanks, Chris. All right, we've got to wrap things up there. My thanks to you all. We will be back in 23 hours and 15 minutes with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.